this actually gives me an occasion to mention one thing that always bothers me about trying to relate DeepRL to biological systems, which is that there's no natural way of taking evolutionary learning into account. For me, the AI work gives us a language to talk about maybe particular axes of activity, say, across the dopamine neurons in the fly. And the question is, how many axes are there? I suppose the fact that the training process has is not completely biologically realistic might lead us astray. But on the other hand, I think having a model that works and, and encompasses many of the things we are looking for and expect is much better than alternative. Somehow across evolution, we have meta-learned some internal landscape, homeostatic landscape, which is not representing the world, but it's representing some internal states that corresponds to the scarcity or presence of various dimensions of rewards in the world. Hopefully by knowing those representations, I think we will be then uh, we will be in the position to, to come back from as, as neuroscientists to AI and give them some some output of what we know in terms of representation in the brain and maybe give 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 something back to to AI This is Brain Inspired Hi, I'm Paul Middlebrooks. Welcome to Brain Inspired. In this episode, you'll hear the uh, panel discussion that I moderated recently at the virtual dopamine conference. So last episode, you heard Ali Mohebi and Ben Inglehard, and we sort of introduced um, dopamine, I suppose, and uh, got their reflections on this panel that you're about to hear and had a pretty broad conversation otherwise about related topics. So in this panel that I moderated, we have Matt Botvinnik, Ida Momenejad, Ashok Litwin Kumar, uh, Ilana Witten, and Armin Lack. And it was co-moderated with me by Tim Kraus. And you'll hear more about them in a moment. So the title of the discussion, the title of the panel, is What Can Artificial Intelligence Teach Us About How the Brain Uses Dopamine to Learn? And I'm just going to read you the abstract because it's short and summarizes everything. Recent advances in artificial intelligence have yielded novel algorithms for reinforcement learning, which leverage the power of deep learning together with reward prediction error signals in order to achieve unprecedented performance in complex tasks. In the brain, reward prediction error signals are thought to be signaled by midbrain dopamine neurons and support learning. Can these new advances in deep reinforcement learning help us understand the role that dopamine plays in learning? In this panel, experts in both theoretical and experimental dopamine research will discuss this question. So there you have it. As a reminder, uh, I, I have an email list for the podcast. And what I do in those emails is often before an episode, I will send out uh, a relevant talk or abstract or some relevant information for the upcoming episode. And that's what I did here. I sent out Matt Botvinnik's uh, talk that he gave that just preceded the discussion you're about to hear. So if that's something that would be of interest to you, you can go to the website and sign up uh, for the email list at braininspired.co, where you can also find information about the panelists that you're about to hear. So enjoy. I will uh, just introduce our panel of speakers here before we kind of dive into the uh, questions and discussion. In no particular order, uh, we have Ashok Litwin Kumar from Columbia University, Ida Momen Najad, uh, who is currently at Microsoft, Armin Lack, 
at Oxford and Ilana Witten, who runs her lab at uh, Princeton. Uh, there's already multiple questions uh, in the Q&A, and I guess I'll just remind everyone that if you want to submit a question, use the Q&A box uh, down below. I-, I suppose just to get started here, um, just from the perspective of your own work, uh, do you see the the deep reinforcement learning models as providing uh, a way into how we we currently think that that brains actually learn, uh, given the various species and computational models uh, that you work on? And uh, maybe uh, I'll just uh, just to point to someone, Armin. Maybe I could uh, start with you. Well, thank you so much. Um, so that. Um... I think in order to get to this question, we probably need to start thinking about what we are currently trying to do in, in, in the experimental side of, of, of systems neuroscience and understanding dopamine. And to me, there are two things that different groups are, are trying to push forward, in, in particular in case of dopamine. One of them is the, the idea of discovering uh, the relation between new cognitive variables, uh, which are not tested in the dopamine case, and the, the representation of them in the dopamine, in the dopamine field. And, and Matt uh, showed a lot of those examples of the kind of new variables that we were not discussing um, and how, uh, how they can be uh, tested and, and parameterized using, using RL. And that's one avenue that I think in system neuroscience we are trying to get to, like design new experiments with new variables and trying to parameterize those in, in animal context. The second one is, is going to, to really cracking the circuit. Um, and trying to understand the, the exact um, connection between neurons, the input of those neuro, the neurons to the dopamine system, as well as their output. Uh, uh, and um, on that front, I think um, uh, a lot of nice experimental work has been done. But when it comes to AI and it comes to reinforcement learning or, or deep reinforcement learning, it seems that we are still quite far from uh, connecting the, the two together, like the bringing, like effectively mapping the mapping this computation onto the circuit. So if I want to, if I want to um, summarize what I, what, I have, what I have been saying is that on the two side that we are pushing in systems neuroscience, so neuroscience, cognitive variables and cracking the circuit, I think so far uh, AI has been more useful um, on the on the side of, of of those variables and parameterizing those variables, and it has been less useful on on helping us to to understand the 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 circuit and the connection between neurons and how they work together to to make those representations. I wonder if uh, Ashok is the the right person to bring in here because uh, he works on partly on figuring out whether we can use circuitry and use connections uh, to deduce function, which isn't. Uh, just an infinitely difficult problem, as you might. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm coming at this from the mostly the Drosophila connectomic side, and the, the kind of first statement one makes when looking at the connectome is everything connects to everything, and, and there's a great deal of diversity and feedback among even all of these neurons that that we think may be doing a, a or mostly doing a particular function like, you know, learning to approach or avoid. Um, so, you know, I, I think for me, the AI work gives us a language to talk about maybe particular axes of 
activity sit across the dopamine neurons in the fly? And the question is, how many axes are there? Are there axes that are, are not encompassed by what we typically think about in AI? And can we infer those from the neuroscience data like the connectome or recordings? So I'm just pausing to see if anyone wants to jump in. And so maybe um, just to make sure everyone gets to speak here in the beginning, Ilana, uh, uh, do you want to add to the um, to the conversation? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so I guess one thing that I would say is that the way I think the way you phrase the question is, what does like the learning like? How does this model the learning process itself? These deep agents, and I would say, and I think Matt would probably agree that the uh, the training of the networks is pretty far from biologically realistic as currently stated, but as currently performed. But the that doesn't mean it can't be a helpful model for the fully trained uh, circuit. So provide constraints on hypotheses for neural data or formalized intuitions. So I think uh, I think at least at the my impression is the current state of the AI training, the deep learning training. No one's taking the training of the network very seriously as a model of the biology. It's only the trained agent that's taken seriously. So I think um, that's an important distinction or clarification with the question. And I do think that uh, once you do have a trained agent, I mean, I think Matt showed beautifully examples of how it can produce the state representations that can really clarify how uh, and trained animal could potentially a model for how a trained animal can do the task and provide a framework to either test formal hypotheses or reject them. And that leaves the other side, which I think thinking about more biologically realistic training protocols that might actually model the learning, the initial learning process itself, which Matt also touched on, seems like a big open area that seems really exciting and important for uh, many biological questions that many of us are interested in. And Ida, I'm going to let you jump in here as well. Uh, thanks. So I think it's fantastic that we have cellular representation here and we have Dorsophila and rodent sort of science. I work mo mostly in humans and I've previously worked with Matt. So I think something that may be important to note is the different types of architecture, especially for higher cognition. I think that deep RL uh, methods are particularly helpful for comparing different um, architectures theorizing about them and comparing different theories in terms of their behavior and also in terms of the similarity of their internal representations with the kinds of similarity we would see in what we measure in humans and maybe uh, monkeys or sometimes rodents in higher cognitive function. And I think that that's a particularly helpful part of DeepRL. What I think might not be quite there. And, and obviously, this is a tradition that goes back to the 80s. So it's not necessarily new to deep viral, but I feel like it moved much further um, after a kind of a hiatus. But uh, other than the higher cognitive function, I think that the reward maximization framework might have limitations, because um, especially if one defines a singular reward, and the reason is that we have many different uh, scales and dimensions of reward that are competing with one another. And there needs to be some higher representation that kind of decides in different moments or manages their homeostasis with regard to long-term and short-term goals. And I think that it could be um, a little uh, 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 sort of challenging to stick to just the reward maximization framework. So we might need a future kind of evolution of deep RL if we want to address these uh, sorts of more 
complex, long-term, short-term, multi-scale approaches. This might be a good time. Matt, you brought up the paper, uh, Reward is Enough, or is it? I don't remember the actual uh, intriguing title. Is Reward Enough? Reward is everything. Reward is the end all. So uh, I'm curious, uh, you said you weren't, you weren't uh, advocating it, but I mean, it is kind of an intriguing um, selling point. And I'm, I'm curious about everyone's take. I'm not sure if, you know, who's read the paper and who's not. Uh, so I would, I, I would, based on what Ida just said, is reward enough? Or is that sort of a trivial question, given that we can define reward as anything? And um, we have a lot of questions coming in. So after we discuss this a little bit, I'll, we'll, we'll have some questions from the audience as well. Can I, can I um, kick that off? Please. Yeah. So um, before, before Dave and, and, and Rich and Doina and, and Satinder put that paper on archive, there was actually a lot of internal debate at DeepMind about this argument that they were making. And I, I, one of my colleagues, Vlad Nee, who was the, the lead author on the, um, the Atari paper, actually, his rebuttal to, to the argument was basically uh, two words, architecture matters. And, and, and so this, this is, gives me an excuse to circle back to this, um, to the points that Armin was making about architecture. I, I think this, our, the circuit, circuit uh, like cracking the circuit, that's a place where it really is important that most deep RL research is not computational neuroscience. There are just aspects of, you know, connectomics that are just not going to come up from AI work. Um, but I think it is, I think on the other hand, there are a lot of insights that we gain from deep RL about um, how things play out, assuming different architectural structures. I mean, convolutional neural networks are a great example of that. Of course, they were inspired by neuroscience and they're heavily used in analyses of the biological nervous system. Coming back to the question of whether reward is enough, this is also an excuse for me to emphasize the point I made at the end of my spiel, which is that deep RL does not necessarily mean end-to-end learning. So a lot of deep RL systems now um, use self-supervised representation learning. So just trying to predict what's going to come next, that's not a reward-driven learning process, but it yields representations that are useful for, for reward maximization. So this connects with the comment that Ida was just making. Um, and it also is relevant to, to what Alana was saying about training, um, training regimes. If, if you have a system that is trying to predict what comes next, that's a very different form of, that's a very different way of using than learning from RL alone. And the results, that can give you much greater sample efficiency, for example. Um, one complaint that neuroscientists often have about deep RL is that it's highly sample inefficient, but it doesn't have to be if you configure things uh, correctly. So maybe we'll jump in with a couple audience questions right now. Um, this is a really interesting discussion and we have one question that's asking, do you think that AI can lead uh, neuroscientists in the wrong direction to match the model instead? So misleading how the brain might compute by trying to match the, the models you're using. I'm happy to field that one if, if, if others are maybe, hesitant. Yeah. Maybe start us off, Matt. Uh, short answer, yes. I mean, at the, at the minute you, the minute you adopt a deep RL model as in neuroscience work, you're you're treating it as a hypothesis, and um, hypotheses are almost always wrong. Um, whether whether you can be misled, that to me seems just like a question of good experimental design. There's nothing 
there's no fundamental difference between a deep RL model as a kind of computationally implemented hypothesis and any other hypothesis in, in neuroscience. So I think you just need to be careful to design good experiments. But I think maybe what the question is getting at is this airplane versus bird thing. There are a lot of aspects of deep RL systems that are just wildly unbiologic. And um, can we be distracted by that? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Ilana, maybe you have something, a perspective on this, because given your your comment about uh, the differences in training and needing and, and the environment and the way it's structured, uh, the differences between training a reinforcement learning algorithm, you know, agent. So, of course, we have, you know, very, quote unquote, realistic mazes and games, uh, but but that is different than the structure of the world. And I don't know if you have thoughts about how that might affect uh, the learning process and the training process how how it could lead us astray in that sense? Um, that's a good question. I, I mean, I actually, I suppose the fact that the training process has is not completely biologically realistic might lead us astray. But on the other hand, I think having a model that works and, and uh, simulates many of the, encompasses many of the things we are looking for and expect is much better than alternative, which is not having a model. So I, I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't use the term lead us astray. I still think, I think it would be interesting. And I definitely think the self-supervised learning aspect that Matt brought up might be a really key and important part of it. Um, but I think it would be very interesting to have like, you know, initial training be as biologically realistic as possible to model that part as well and see if that makes different predictions about the end uh, function of the network. That seems like an interesting and important research direction, but I, I wouldn't have gone so far to say that like having the initial training being not particularly uh, biologically realistic means that it's not a useful model at the end. But it's, an, I mean, of course that could be the case. That sounds like an important research direction. Okay, I think I was also, I haven't read the Reward is Enough paper uh, myself, so I just was curious what that paper was really saying. Were they really arguing against the importance of self-supervised learning and sensory-sensory prediction, or what were they actually saying? Because that seems like a very strong argument to make that there's no like learning about the structure of the world without reward, because even if ultimately the goal is to get reward, obviously it seems very useful to know about the structure of the world and learn it. So what were they actually saying? Defend your colleagues, sir. <laughs> I, I, I haven't read the paper, but I've talked to the authors an awful lot. So um, I, I think the argument is that optimizing a reward on a reward function through, through experience with the world is guaranteed to be enough to give you the representations that you need in order to maximize reward. What it doesn't guarantee, and which is something that's neglected in their argument, at least as they made it verbally in inside DMind, is is sample efficiency, right? Like, y yes, reward, like RL is enough to get any intelligent behavior um, given infinite experience, infinite data. Uh, but it doesn't explain how, uh, you know, how, humans and other animals, uh, for example, are able to learn in such a sample efficient way. Of course, that's an argument, like that's a point that cognitive science scientists like Josh Tenenbaum have been making for years with, with great legitimacy. Um, uh, and that's just not something that comes up in that paper. There are ways of getting there. The, the Nature Neuroscience paper that I briefly summarized in my spiel is really about meta learning, and um, you, you know, if you if you look at our paper, it's all about how 
um, pre-training on a wide variety of tasks can lead to a system that can then learn in a very sample efficient way. But um, this actually gives me an occasion to mention one thing that always bothers me about trying to relate DeepRL to biological systems, which is that there's no natural way of taking evolutionary learning into account. So, you know, when, when Alanda does experiments uh, with animals, not only do they have the benefit of whatever experience they've had in their lifetime, but their brains were designed by eons of evolutionary learning, which consumes data, right? It, like it's not, it's not sample efficient, um, but it, it wires in certain, um, you know, uh, architectural uh, um, uh, structures in, into the brain. And, and I just, I, I don't know any way to get to capture that side of the story in DeepRL. There are people who play with evolutionary algorithms that design architectures and so forth, but it's very hard to get the analogy right. I just want to echo that I think the conflation of, of evolutionary and development and kind of within lifetime learning is, is one of the most difficult things when we're trying to make analogies between these agents and, and biological systems. Yeah. Ida, you have a raised hand there. Uh, just wanted to uh, maybe ask Matt this or anyone else. Um, Matt, do you think it would be fair to think that there are different cultures of reinforcement learning that kind of correspond to the history of cognitive science, where some are closer to behaviorism, some are more akin to the cognitive turn after Tolman, which I guess you and me would be a part of it, and some might be even closer to inactivism and talking about empowerment and interaction sort of learning, and which is much more used in robotics where there is a body that needs to interact with an environment. And these are the three sort of cultures that sort of progress through cognitive science. And it seems to me that perhaps reward is not enough, is akin to the behaviorist culture of RL. I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like any other discipline, any other human culture. There are definitely uh, different subcultures. And, you know, in particular, there have been people who have been very focused on questions of sample efficiency and other people who just don't care, you know, um, who, who figure, you know, we'll get the data we need. Um, we're not, you know, I mean, it's important to emphasize most AI researchers are not trying to model human uh, behavior or brain functions. So, uh, you know, the fact that AlphaGo takes a huge number of games to learn what it learns relative to what a human consumes is just not, it doesn't matter to, to, to some of the people who do this kind of research. It's not the problem that they're addressing. Um, whereas for other researchers, often ones who come from a cognitive science background, uh, yes, um, that difference is irritating, not because DeepRL is necessarily being applied as a model of human learning, but just because we have a notion of what intelligence is. And, it, and part of that is learning in a sample efficient way. Like that's just what intelligence, that's how intelligence manifests. Um, another, another important cultural division is between people who are very focused on single task learning. Like I just want to get as good at chess as I can versus people who are more interested in multitask learning. You know, I want to learn six Atari games and then I want the seventh to be acquired more rapidly than it would otherwise be acquired. They're just, people have different, they set up, they define the problem in different ways, which leads to different emphases. Absolutely. This might be a good time to ask uh, a couple listener questions as well. I mean, I just, carrying off what you were just talking about, Matt. So um, the, the top voted question right now is in, in AI, you have known problems uh, like reward hacking. Do you think those are unique AI problems or is there a biological parallel? 
This Any animal me. researcher has seen reward hacking in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, given, okay. <laughs> so, so the answer is yes, I suppose. Uh, I wonder if that'll be satisfying to Ben. I should let other people talk then. If no one has anything to say, there, there's another, there's an actual dopamine question and this is a dopamine conference. So um, maybe we can move on while people think about that question more. Uh, dopamine, what might be the, uh, what might the co-release of GABA or glutamate with dopamine, both at the levels of the axon uh, and vesicles, imply for deep reinforcement learning? This is a, kind of a specific question, but it also speaks to the larger issue of um, the relative narrowness and specificity that computational approaches can take. So I'll just, uh, does anyone have a response to that co-release question? I actually do, inspired by Matt's uh, paper, um, his uh, 2018 Wang et al. The Wang et al. paper. The meta reinforcement learning paper, right? Yeah, the one that you described, uh, which is that, I mean, one argument that you made was that maybe dopamine is after, like maybe initial, it's involved in initial learning to train the weights, but then after initial learning, dopamine might be just an input to the system. Uh, that just like a reward that the um, network uses as reward input. And to me, that makes much more sense as a potential function for the glutamate co-release. I don't know if you specifically mm. said that in your, I don't think you said that in your paper, that's sort of how I interpreted it. No, we didn't say that. That's a great yeah. idea. Though. <laughs> yeah, but it makes more sense to me because like, you know, dopamine does modulate plus it just doesn't feel right for just like an input that like drives the neurons, but there is this co-release. So it could be like a kind of computational function of that co-release. So that's how I read that uh, paper. I never thought of that. That's fascinating. Thank you. There's also the question of whether we have dopamine solved, right? Um, so a couple of the panelists here, uh, Armen and Ilana specifically, I know, uh, have talked about all the different cofactors uh, outside of just reward prediction error that dopamine is involved in. Um, Armen, maybe uh, maybe you can talk about this. Do you feel like that we have a, a good grasp on what dopamine is doing within the reinforcement learning approach, or do we really need to expand and include a thousand different computational factors as well? So, um, yeah, that's that's a really good question, and it's it's very hard to answer. I think at, at at some level we have some good grasp of 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 what the what the function what one of the core function is, but that of course doesn't exclude other functions. And I think we are in the beginning of, of even exploring those other functions. Uh, and um, the tools that we have now would actually allow us to do so. Uh, we are, uh, I think it's only a matter of years that it's only some years that we are actually measuring dopamine with a specificity that we, that we like. And that's really allowing us to, to, to now think about the, the, the variables beyond reward prediction error. Uh, which has been hard to really uh, to to examine because most of these type of variables um, might turn out to be subtle in terms of the behavioral effect that they have and therefore the neural representation that they have, um, which then this this subtle nature of this type of variable uh, beyond reward prediction error could have been made it very hard to actually discover it in the in the in the limited type of recording that we have been doing previously in one neuron or indirect measurement of dopamine. I think with the tools that we have, um, we are actually in the position to, to explore and go beyond the, what, what is known in the dopamine system. 
Um, some of these questions are, uh, which are at the moment uh, a lot of groups are addressing, are really going towards the idea of, of characterizing the responses in relation to very basic variables, like the action or the motivation or the representation of a stimulus. So kind of very much external input or a, a, a very kind of visible, observable uh, type of behavioral uh, variable. Um, some of the others are, are, are really internal variables. There are those that we can arguably, arguably only uh, recover using models, using RL models or similar models. Um, and I think in that front, we are, we are really in the beginning of, of understanding, not only in the dopamine case, but also in the rest of the brain of how those representations are happening. And um, hopefully by knowing those representations, I think we will be then uh, we will be in the position to, 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 to come back from as, as neuroscientists to AI and give them some, some output of what we know in terms of representation in the brain and maybe give, give, give something back to, to AI. I want to jump in here with another question that is somewhat related. I'm going to summarize this longer one where, where it's asking essentially if you're starting with your models with the assumption that dopamine is encoding RPE, but we also know that dopamine is involved in things like vigor, motivation, um, responsibility, etc. How can we then test in our model that dopamine is just coding RPE? Um, and also when we know that the RPE itself is uh, estimated from, it really depends on the value function you're using or your reward function. Um, so is that assumption really hurting us? Um, should we go about this a different way? I, I, I can, I can, I can kick, kick things off if that's all right. I think deep RL models have exactly the same character as classical RL models that of course have been used widely in, in, in psychology and neuroscience. If you're, yeah, if you're modeling the function of dopamine strictly in classical RPE terms, uh, but the dopamine neurons that you're looking at don't actually, they're not actually doing that, then you're going to falsify your model. Like that's just, that's just, that's just the way it is, even with a deep RL system. I mean, the, I mean, the, the distributional dopamine project that I described is a great example of that. Like, it, like the dopamine neurons are definitely doing stuff that, a classical RL model cannot explain. There's just variance in the data that's not explained, um, but that is explained by quite a different kind of deep RL model. There's no, there's nothing, there, there are no new principles involved in, in computational modeling here. What, what does get complicated and, and, and the, the question flagged this is that because there's representation learning going on, um, you know, there, there, things can happen in the model that depend very much on the way that you assume the perceptual data is structured or what you assume about the reward function. So I'm thinking about like Anne's talk yesterday, show, you know, showing that the dopamine system cares about whatever outcome was just instructed to a human participant as the goal. You have to know that humans... I don't know, are sensitive to social reward. They want to comply with instructions or something. That's just part of our reward function as Anne's results show. So if you're not assuming the right reward function, again, you're going to get a model that doesn't explain your data. Um, but fortunately, it's a model and you can disconfirm it and, and you'll know you're wrong. And that's so it's normal science in that regard. 
Do we? So maybe Ashok, you you've done work in the mushroom body uh, of Drosophila, the olfactory uh, sensory processing area, and I'm I'm kind of wondering, thinking about the distributional reinforcement learning that Matt talked about, um, there you know there might just be this trend toward more and more detail, uh, and so Matt talked about it in terms of. Um, the amount of uh, prediction, the amount of optimism and pessimism each different uh, little circuit might have in the dopamine uh, reward circuits. Uh, you know, I'm wondering if, if we need to incorporate a thousand more details or how that maps on how you think that a deep reinforcement learning model might need to be adjusted architecturally and or in any other way to map onto something species specific like Drosophila in, in the mushroom body uh, as an example. Yeah, so... In the mushroom body, there are these kind of other axes of heterogeneity across different compartments, each of which, you know, learns with its own particular dopamine-dependent signal. These include compartments that are involved in short-term memory versus long-term memory, involved in novelty versus reward um, or aversive learning. Um, and even subtypes of reward, sugar or uh, something else. And I really like the distributional story because it's kind of introducing one axis of variation here. But in flies, it seems like there are at least you know three or four other axes of variation. So we kind of need to think about systems that are each learning a slightly different thing and then somehow combining each of, of these different predictions uh, into a, a coherent action. And, and you know, we have a, a connectome which we are beginning to kind of correlate with these behavioral and, and functional heterogeneities. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. I, I couldn't agree more, yeah. Does structure matter? So, so in, a, in an AI agent, structure is less important and you just kind of throw the world at a big model, right? And, and it can learn those uh, associations. But in something like the mushroom body, the architecture is very specific. Um, does it, do you need specific structure in an AI model to uh, derive experimental predictions in something that is much more architecturally specific? And this is for everyone, uh, not just Ashok, but. Yeah, I'll just start. I, I think one thing that's interesting about the mushroom body is at least its factory representation is among the more unstructured in the fly brain. It has this kind of random um, heterogeneous connectivity. At the same time, there are these separate systems for visual input or for thermosensory input, and these reflect some kind of you know, evolutionary optimization of exactly what kinds of information should be combined when in order to do what a fly should do. So I think the answer is, is yeah, we, we do need to think about uh, these architectural optimizations if we're going to map onto the behavior of a particular animal. Do you, uh, rodent experimental modelists, uh, do you guys agree? Armin, Ilana? Well, um, if I understand the correct question, it also kind of relates to the point that was brought up about evolutionary learning versus... Um, versus yeah. development learning versus task learning, which are, of course, very, very hard issues, which, again, makes me less excited about the whole initial learning question in the first place um, in the context of these deep networks. But, I mean, I think it's a really important point. Um, and I do think adding more kind of 
anatomical constraints to models is clearly the direction the field should go in all of neuroscience. I think as the connectomes becomes available in more species, that is uh, going to be really exciting to understand what are the constraints it it gives. But there's also just, I think, this bigger, deep challenge about the different levels of learning uh, and how we can seriously think about them is pretty challenging, as, as has already been discussed. So the question here that I think uh, Ida would probably be the best to answer, it's for Ida's view that the reward maximization has limitation with the homeostatic RL. Would there be any RL model with an agent's internal set point or internal state dependent modulation of value rather than context from the environment? And along those lines, how could the multidimensionality of value map or internal drive like thirst versus hunger be computed in the AI agent? So... Excellent questions, something I am actually working on. And I just want to also acknowledge a paper, by, two papers by Kara Mati and Gutkin, where they use the RL framework to address homeostatic learning. And they indeed this, uh, sort of have this idea of an internal uh, landscape of uh, your homeostatic state, and it, they assume a kind of a, a, a simple sort of surface for it. But then if uh, the some internal sense of where you are compared to that ideal point, your distance would translate into drive towards action. So they have a wonderful sort of um, theory there. However, it's still within the framework of RL. So it hasn't completely moved towards using this idea of homeostatic learning as opposed to reinforcement learning to manage it. So there, the idea is to minimize the distance, for instance, between this uh, internal actual state and going back to the wonderful point that Ashok was mentioning with regards to different dimensions of reward. Here they consider two, but it's generalizable to multiple, which they consider, for instance, sugar and temperature, and then they simulate some results from rodent data. It was first a NERDS paper and then an eLife paper, and then there was another paper. I recommend people to look at it. But uh, there are other ways to consider how rewards evolve uh, or how this internal landscape uh, evolves over time, for instance. And there, for instance, we are using this idea of uh, meta-learning, applying it to homeostatic meta-learning. So that's one way to go forward. Somehow across evolution, we have meta-learned some internal landscape, homeostatic landscape, which is not representing the world, but it's representing some internal states that corresponds to the scarcity or presence of various dimensions of rewards in the world. And so I think there is Wonderful work to be done there. Uh, if I remember the entire question completely, I would love to hear also from, from Matt and from others what they think about these competing dimensions of reward that I think to some extent Ashok mentioned. And in some situations, for instance, if I'm dying, if, if my sugar is in a particular state, I need to predict how long I have to replenish it without dying so that I can go to sleep. If I go to sleep and I'm going to sleep for five hours, but then my sugar is going to get depleted and I'm going to die in two hours, I shouldn't go to sleep. So even if I'm very sleepy. So these, there are many situations where animals need to decide uh, with these kind of competing situations by predicting their own homeostasis within a particular time, given they take one or the other action. It seems super complicated. And I want to hear from everyone what kind of architectures, what kind of circuits they think allows for this. And I guess uh, in Drosophila, it might be easier because you have all the connectome and you know all the dimensions and it might be harder for mammals. But I do wonder what everyone thinks about um, how that is sort of managed. Obviously, dopamine has been around way early in the evolution before animals like get way earlier than the species we are sort of analyzing. So I wonder also what would be the role of dopamine in this, which seems to be maybe a little less 
dimension specific, it might be, I don't know what you guys think, actually, if there are different dopamines for different dimensions of reward, if there is a way that it kind of um, credit assigns to those dimensions or access, as Ashok was saying, to solve the problem, what is the computation that decides between them? How does it forecast into the future my homeostatic state? I uh, wonder what you all think. I can, I, I, let me kick it off just with a high-level comment about DeepRL. People, people approaching intelligence from an AI perspective tend to have a bias toward generality. Like, the, you know, there's this term AGI, artificial general intelligence. People want learning systems, including DeepRL systems, that are, you know, have, have the least commitment to some particular problem domain and, and our general purpose in, in that way. It, it's tricky, though, because, you know, in, in machine learning, there's this no free lunch principle, which says that in a, in a sense, it says the opposite. It says intelligence is sort of proportional to the degree to which you commit to a particular range of environments. And of course, animals do commit, right? Like fruit flies are good at being fruit flies. Like their brains are designed to solve the problems that fruit flies face. Um, there's nothing general about the need to keep your glucose level up when you have a certain metabolic rate. That's a very, very specific problem. So a, a brain that's optimized to deal with that or to solve, say, foraging problems is not a general purpose intelligence. Um, and this, is, this, along with the very related um, evolutionary learning point that came up earlier, is a major disconnect between... Um, between studying biological systems and the, the kind of approach that people take in AI. And this is, I think, even true of humans. Humans are like, we seem much more general purpose than say fruit flies, but we're good at dealing with problems that have a particular kind of generic structure, which is a kind of compositionality. Um, and we're, we're stuck with certain representational formats. If you permuted our rods and cones, we'd be blind. You know, we really, our brains work under a certain set of uh, assumptions. And, and I think that's important to keep in view and it's relevant to the kinds of uh, issues you're raising, Ida. Anyone else want to jump in and comment? I think the question from, from Ida are very, very interesting. It has been very hard to actually translate those um, experiments, the homostatic experiment into um, type of recording that we do uh, in, in, in dopamine system, given the long time scale of that type of behavior. When we think about those those homostatic situations, they are over, uh, developing over hours and, and days, right? Um, but I think these are really, really interesting questions to address now that we have the tools for addressing those questions uh, to move towards the kind of the, the internal state of the animal and bring at that into the into the studies of, of learning and decision making. But uh, on the role of dopamine on, on this, I think it's it's a still a very open question. Uh, so. Some years ago, we did an experiment in which we were changing the properties of reward from one type of the juice to the other type of the juice, from one magnitude to the other magnitude, or the probabilistic versus uh, safe juice. And in the recordings that we were doing at dopamine at that time, we got to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter for dopamine what exact properties those rewards have, as long as animal is liking them, as long as 
you can see the revealed preference of the animal, then the dopamine neurons are showing up. But that doesn't really exclude the possibility of having subset of these neurons doing a specific computation for a specific reward and paying attention to the uh, properties of those rewards, considering the, the, the internal and homostatic state of the animal. Yeah, and also, well, at least my thinking, and I think consistent with what Armin just said, is I was very struck by a paper that came out maybe in the last couple of years from the Dysroth lab where they made the animal thirsty, uh, optogenetically, or just, I guess, or sated them one or the other, and they got like entire brain change representation. So I think the state representation is everywhere. So you don't need it in the dopamine system in any way, shape or form. Not, not to say it's not there, it couldn't be there, but it has. there hasn't been super compelling evidence so far that it is there as far as I'm aware. And certainly it's everywhere else. <laughs> so uh, those two pieces together, yeah, make me lean to that view that at least the type of reward isn't dopamine neurons aren't super specialized for the type of reward, but the state representation, internal state representation is part of the state representation everywhere. So it's very easy to do internal state dependent reinforcement learning with that, like, you know, rest of the circuit to, for dopamine to work on. So Matt, in, in your talks, uh, you often talk about how you guys have been working on deep reinforcement learning system. And then you thought, huh, maybe the brain does it this way. Where could it, where could it do, the, do it this way in the brain? Um, there's a question from the audience that I'm going to kind of morph, I guess. The, the question is about whether uh, a deep reinforcement learning system could come up with solutions that are just completely unrecognizable in brains, that, uh, that could either change the knowledge, change the nature of the way that we think about how brains do things, or we just may not have a touch point with. Um, or... Is it are the deep reinforcement learning models constrained enough as they are, since they're made of artificial neural networks and a reinforcement learning system, that they will be within the space of possible solutions that they will be able to map any solution they come up with onto some algorithmic level or computational level and or implementational level uh, in the brain? Um, I, I mean, I I I think I think. I, I think it's definitely possible uh, for for uh, artificial neural networks to arrive at um, solutions that will be very unbrain-like. Um, but the problem is, it's very hard to know when you're looking at that. There, I mean, there there are some the, the cases where the cases where things are very unbrain-like are 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 obvious in, in in some regards because they have to do with the way that that the the data is handled by the system. So for example, many people um, in today's session will be familiar with recent um, language modeling breakthroughs in AI. And basically what, what uh, contemporary language models do is they process a text by just sort of ingesting all of the words in parallel. So they, what they basically do is they spatialize time. They don't really deal with the word by word, at least some of them don't deal with the one word at a time sort of causal um, causal sequence. And that's just obviously not brain-like. So um, you know right from the setup that you're dealing with something that doesn't really address the way that the brain handles language. On the other hand, there are a lot of cases where something cool is going on in an, in an artificial neural network, and you're just not sure whether it's brain-like or not. And that those are the cases where I think these systems offer themselves as interesting, like testable hypotheses. So the same hap this also happens in large language models. I'm sort of fascinated by these models because 
transformers um, uh, have an architectural bias. They have a particular um, structure that encourages compositional uh, computation um, and allows deep learning systems to generalize in ways that they didn't um, before. And I look at that as a cognitive scientist and I think, oh, we've been wanting neural networks to do compositional computation for decades and now we have a way of doing it. That's amazing. Maybe that has something to do with the way the brain does computation, does compositional computation, because we know it does. Um, but I don't know, looking at these transformers, whether the solution in those models is really the same in any, even in any abstract way as the solution that the brain is finding. And that's just, that's where research comes in. Like you just have to ask and find out. I do want to ask, um, as we, we are closing in on time a little bit, but there's an, <laughs> I don't know exactly how to ask this. I, I want to ask each of the panelists in your daily work, as you're um, making models, as you're thinking about the uh, architectures and specific needs of the species that you're working with, is there anything lingering in your minds uh, that you think deep reinforcement learning really doesn't address this particular thing? And if so, um, do you have insight on what you would need from a deep reinforcement learning approach, how it would need to change to address that lingering thing in your mind? I guess deep, re deep reinforcement learning has solved it all, perhaps. Re reward is enough. <laughs> I can start. <laughs> I can start. Um, so I think there's two things that I think, uh, at, well, three, I would say three things that I, I would like to see uh, more in DL. I think that deep RL, uh, or I think that at least those are the directions that I'm working on. So maybe I'm biased, but one thing is something that Matt already mentioned and others already mentioned, which is architecture. And I do think comparing different architectures and that using that as a means either of comparing developing and comparing different architectures for cognitive cognition in biological agents, or whether it is for solving different tasks, it's a big part of it. And it's not the, even in the, even in deep learning for AI purposes, without a care for biological agents, architecture matters a lot, actually, whether it's for sample efficiency, whether it's for what kind of problems are possible to solve, whether it's for, can you remember how much, can you remember given your memory and sample size of the events you will experience in the world are not a match? There is so much to be talk, talked about, about architecture and algorithm, even in the absence of the relevance to biological creatures, but even more so for us who are cognitive neuroscientists. The second thing I would say is uh, actually something that um, we uh, it got accepted and uh, it's going to be out at uh, ICML, which was like my first paper at, at, at uh, Microsoft Research, which we call interaction grounded learning. In much of the situations, biological agents do not move around the world where things have a reward tag. So, and there is no programmer God who provides a reward function in the world. We really have to learn an interaction with the world and it's really noisy. And so we took a first step, a first theoretical step and a sort of a basic demonstration that we hope to follow up on for interaction grounded learning. And I think that doing more work on situations where um, rewards are not labeled or provided, can, uh, the new generations of reinforcement learning can handle that. It's not an entirely different field to think about reinforcement learning without rewards so to speak, where the agent in interaction with the world needs to ground or define its own reward somehow. 
And the third thing that I would say is, uh, again, something that I learned from Matt, um, which is uh, another paper that we got at ICML, which is about human-like navigation. If you compare state-of-the-art deep learning algorithms that can solve navigation or pass a benchmark for navigation in an Xbox game that we used, not all of them look human-like. So we had humans in a Turing test look at the behavior of the avatar in the game when it was played by different architectures, all of which passed the benchmark, and not all of them looked human-like. And some looked more human-like, and we needed to add more architectural components for it to even behave more human-like, let alone have a human-like representation, which is the next step. So I guess the third part that I would say is that um, in many applications of DeepRL, which are going to interface with humans, we want them to behave human-like, even if people don't care about cognitive neuroscience. I mean, I do care very deeply, but even for those who only want the applications, they should care about uh, it's not just passing a benchmark, but behaving the same way humans do. That includes having errors or having uh, trajectories that are more human-like. And then the next step is what... Um, for instance, uh, Matt was mentioning as well, which is solving it in a sample efficient way with sample efficient representations like humans. So I would say these three things uh, would be what I would hope uh, deep reinforcement learning would have in the future. One thing that I will add that I think hasn't yet come up that I've wondered about is for is that um, as far as I know, when these deep reinforcement learning networks are fit, they aren't fit. I mean, sorry, they're not fit they aren't fit to data. They're not fit to the neural activity or to the behavior. They're just trained to do a task. And that's different from like for supervised learning and for simpler reinforcement learning, you know, those are actually fit to data neural activity, which makes the link many ways easier and more compelling. So it does seem like uh, thinking about ways to fill that hole seems like a major hole to really uh, provide constrained uh models, literally to constrain the models based on data rather than just like produce a model and see if it uh, matches the data. If that, yeah. I, I, I love that point, Alana. I, I, I just want to mention that there, there is work fitting behavior. So um, uh, behavioral cloning is a, a, a major area in, in AI and, it, it, and it's aimed at finding policies that generate some target behavior. Like, let's say you have some motion capture data and you want an agent that does that. Uh, in fact, the, the soccer, the soccer um, video that I showed was um, tuned with RL, uh, you know, scoring points being the reward function, but the basic skills like pass, like kicking the ball and running were trained through behavioral cloning. And, and you can apply this readily in neuroscience. So, I showed the little model rat running around. That rat was trained with RL, but you can also train a rat. Uh, you can tra train that same artificial rat using motion capture from a real rat. And then you have a controller, like a recurrent neural network that you can say, well, okay, what's going on inside this recurrent neural network? Do, do the unit activities resemble what we see, say, in striatum? And, and in fact, we're collaborating with Ben Sielvetsky on a project uh, uh, exactly of that kind. Um, I, while I have the floor, I'll just respond to the original, original question. One thing that uh, DeepRL systems aren't good at, that at least humans are, uh, is continual learning, um, like learning in an open-ended way, like collecting knowledge gradually and adding new knowledge to a growing store of knowledge without 
overwriting, earlier learning. Many people will be familiar with the, with the problem of catastrophic interference. It's like not a solved problem. Um, so that kind of, the, there's a term lifelong learning that, that some people are starting to use in AI more and more, like that's becoming a goal and it's, we don't know how to do it. Um, I just, I, I'll shut up in a second, but I just wanna say something radical, which is the question was, what do deep RL systems, what can they not do that brains can do? I would flip the script and say, like what I'm really proposing is that brains are deep learning. They are deep RL systems. Brains are deep RL systems. They're natural deep RL systems. Uh, and they work differently in some ways from artificial engineered deep RL systems. Um, and so the question can be rephrased in those terms, but I'd like to, to make my own radical statement along those lines. I suppose this is a natural ending with, um, with Matt screaming, brains are deep RL systems. So uh, I feel like we're just getting started, but um, this was fun. So thanks to the panelists, Armin, Ilana, Ashok, Ida, and Matt. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair